back in Isaiah 40. In my more foolish moments, I wonder why John Newton did it in two sermons since they're consecutive passages. Uh, but, but then I go, it would have been way too long. So I just need to get there. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ministry of declaring your mercy in Christ. As you spoke and light shined out of darkness, shine the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. Jesus and his gospel are, in fact, the true treasure. We are, and self-included, but jars of clay given to reveal your surpassing power. And may that be so this morning. Amen. I was a little late to the party, and and by that I mean um, they rebooted Battlestar Galactica. And um, two years ago I watched it on Netflix, so that's what I mean by being late to the party. I got to binge on it when everyone went to bed. And one of the weird things that happened in this story of the human race fleeing from the Cylons uh, is that Starbuck, who in the reboot was now a woman, uh, Starbuck the fighter pilot, was called the Harbinger. And I was like, now, that's an unusual word. And I didn't think to look it up at the time because, well, it was probably 10.30 at night. (laughs) But one of the themes that uh, repeatedly came up was this idea uh, that Starbuck was the harbinger of death. But it was a little uncertain as to whose death it was going to be. So imagine my surprise as I open my works of John Newton to the second sermon on the, the, the messages from Handel's Messiah, and it's called The Harbinger. This time it's 7 in the morning, not 10.30 at night. So I opened my computer, went to dictionary.com, and saw that it means a messenger, a herald. Or it can also mean an omen or sign of something that is about to happen. John Newton, like many others, as we're going to see later on, saw that this was speaking about not an omen of something that was going to happen, uh, but a forerunner, uh, someone who is proclaiming what's about to happen. And so let's spend our time looking at what this person says. Let's start with a question. We, we, if we remember verses 1 and 2, we see, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare or hardship is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, uh, let's, 
not completely disconnect that from what is about to be said. Uh, let's keep that in mind because God is about to speak or continue to speak comfort to his people. His comfort, is it just about forgiveness or does the gospel include more for us than simply forgiveness? Not less than forgiveness, but more than forgiveness. What's interesting here is, uh, obviously this is poetry, you can tell if you you know, a lot of white space, okay? Uh, the, the poetry here is filled with parallelism, and there are many words that have similar meanings sprown, uh, strewn throughout this text that we have here for us. There's a lot of nuance that, that Isaiah is getting at here. But let's start with, with the initial thing, is that a voice cries in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that he's talking about roads. I'm not too fascinated by roads, um, except when they're hard to drive on. And that's true about uh, certain parts of Polk County. Not Polk County. I now live in Pima County. The P's, the P's mess me up. The roads are okay in Polk County. They're not so okay in Pima County. Uh, in fact, I've noticed that my driving habits when I leave the office have changed because I've, I've decided I'm tired of certain stretches of road and other stretches of road are nice and smooth. So I go a little bit out of my way on the way home to ride on the smooth parts. It was no different there. There were different kinds of roads, just as there were here. There were roads in the, that were local. There were roads that were sort of regional. And then there were great big long roads. Okay. Short, medium, long. The roads were sort of identified by their length and by their quality. The longer the road, the more likely it was to be a fairly decent and passable road. The shorter the road, the less likely that you could travel it with your horse or whatever you happen to have that particular day. Now, what's interesting is that there were three highways, and they use this word in this text. There are three highways in Canaan, and I've got them, they show them on the map here. One is the coastal highway that you see going through uh, the Philistine cities and up into Tyre and Sidon, and I still need to get one of them that are laser pointers for you, so, you know. One is sort of what they call the Sinai Road, uh, because it goes from the region of Sinai uh, up, it's... A little bit east, but it's still west of the Jordan River, uh, up through Jerusalem, through Hebron, Beersheba. And now those cities ought to ring a bell. In other words, Abraham spent much of his time going up and down the Sinai Highway. Okay, Because you read about Beersheba, you read about Hebron, and then, of course, Jerusalem at times. Uh, those... Moved up and down that road. The main road, the King's Highway, is the Red Sea Highway that goes from the Red Sea all the way up past the Jordan, way up to Damascus, and stretches even beyond going to places like Assyria. That's the the highway that is most likely uh, in view here. Okay? the one that's east of the Jordan, the King's Highway, it would be remodeled, restored, rebuilt, 
expanded in the time of the Romans and renamed Trojans, uh, Trajans rather, highway. But we see that the king's highway played an important role in the early life of Israel as they were leaving, um, as opposed to Abraham, who spent his time on the Sinai Highway, when the Israelites left Egypt, they came up out of the Red Sea Highway. And we see in places like Numbers 20, please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. And as an aside, we see that they're asking permission to travel through another country. They weren't going to stay in that country. They were just passing through, but they asked for permission to travel along the highway, vowing not to damage anything that was on the side by the wells or to steal property or anything. And they were denied that privilege by the people. So it goes into a larger story in Numbers 20 if you want to. But we see that these highways, this highway is going to play an important role. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, in the desert, a highway. Isaiah speaks in these contrasts. There's antithetical parallelism that we see, particularly in verse 4. The valleys will be lifted up, the mountains and hills made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. We see uh, that everything is remade. And it's remade so that the road is usable. It's all going to change. Now what happened... Generally speaking, is that heralds or harbingers preceded kings in order to make sure that the people prepared the roads, that the impassable roads were made passable. And we see some of that in the idea here of the, the uneven ground and the rough places as being places where normally you couldn't travel. And now they're made so that you could travel in anticipation of the coming of a king. Something similar would happen if dignitaries go to a city, a major city. Imagine for a moment San Francisco or New York, one of these cities where if you go to certain parts of town, it's almost as though they have no sanitation. Well, all that would get cleaned up in anticipation of the coming king or dignitary to the place. So there's a messenger, one who comes to prepare people. One who's, who's giving this message so that people are ready for the arrival of a dignitary. Our question sort of ends up being, is he speaking about the arrival of God or is he speaking about the people's departure? Their departure from exile. It's interestingly enough, uh, in my reading this week, I was in Lamentations, and we see this in Lamentations 4, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Fits in rather nicely with where we we are right here in Isaiah 40, which speaks of um, the punishment being over. 
and, and, uh, and Israel being forgiven of her sins. And this is a further word of the restoration. It's saying, God is going to come for you. God is going to bring you home. Imagine that. Uh, we, we, we can't really conceive of this. Uh, we're not refugees. Uh, we're, not, we're not exiles, most of us. Okay, I, I know some of you were born in other continents. Okay? But most of us can't conceive of this, of being forced from your home. Of being dragged across the wilderness uh, for hundreds of miles into a foreign place where no one speaks your language except the people who were dragged along with you. Being a second class citizen in that place And then suddenly hearing this message, you can go home. Oh, what a comfort to the people of God that would have been when it was time to go home. For while they put some roots in in Babylon, their heart was really all the time back home in Judah. God's going to come. God's going to bring them home. God had not forgotten His covenant promises. He'd not forgotten His promises about them being His people. He he had not forgotten his, His promises about giving them a place and about being present with them. God was going to bring an end to Babylon as well as an end to their Babylonian captivity. You see something of this in Battlestar Galacta in a strange sort of way because Starbuck is a harbinger, in this case an omen, not a messenger. But her return from a mysterious absence is a harbinger, a sign uh, that the Cylon's reign of terror is coming to an end and her people will have a place to live forever, so to speak. What are we to think of this? What was, what was the original audience meant to think about this? How much stock can they put in this particular promise that Isaiah has just laid out? Well, God addresses that very clearly. He says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. It's going to be a public thing. No one's going to miss it. It's not going to happen in the middle of the night like when the Baltimore Colts left. They snuck out in 18-wheelers. Public. Well-known. Visible for all around them to see. And it's guaranteed. Because he goes goes further. He says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken and God can't lie. So they could bank on this promise. And in fact, we see in the Cyrus Edict that it came to pass. Scripture in 2 Chronicles 36 records what happened. We see in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now, he mentions Jeremiah, but that's not the only prophet that brings it up, right? Isaiah does too. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, 
Let's pause for a moment. Proclamation through all his kingdom. The largest kingdom on earth at that particular point in time. A kingdom that stretched close to India. A kingdom that stretched into Palestine and and close to Egypt. The largest kingdom in the world. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Cyrus makes this edict that God has given him all of these these kingdoms, and now he's going to let God's people go back to their home. He's going to give money for a temple to be built. They have a place. They have the presence of God. The harbinger of whom Isaiah speaks declares that God would bring his people home. Great comfort. Now, is this comfort just about the physical return of God's people from exile? Or is there more going on here? Is there something even greater in store for them? Well, I believe that the covenant promises were not just about a physical, but also a spiritual return. Just as the covenant promises to Abraham entailed some physical things, but also spiritual things. We see, for instance, in Deuteronomy 30, talking about after they've already gone into exile because of the the discipline of the Lord, the curses of the covenant, we see, and when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, okay? The exile. When you think about this when you're in the exile... Moses says, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. With all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. There's the promise of the return from exile in Deuteronomy 30. That's not just a return from exile, but a return to the Lord. Because they're returning to the Lord their God. Not just them, but them and their children or their seed. These spiritual blessings are accompanying the physical blessings of a return to the land. Isaiah is hinting at this in his poetry, which has double meanings for many of these nouns and verbs, and we see examples of some of these double meetings from the, what we heard in Isaiah 2. But we see in other places some of these hints as well. Psalm 84. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So uh, the road back to God is not a physical road. The road back to God is one that's in the heart. It's a spiritual road, not a physical road. Proverbs 16, similar. 
the highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. And so we see those same two words, way and, and highway, in Proverbs 16, speaking about the way of the righteous, not a physical road. Isaiah 35, verse 8, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. And one more from, my, from Jeremiah 18. But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways, in the ancient roads or highways, and to walk in the side roads, not the highway. So that we see that, that these words for roads and ways and paths are not just physical places that get you from one geographical location to another, but they also point to the roads of the heart. Way can be understood figuratively, figuratively to mean the way of life, and in particular, the Lord's way. Highway was a raised up road. A road with a foundation and flat stones. And we see some Roman roads that are similar to this. Imagine that for a moment. This was built 2,000 years ago. This is not a Pima County road. See, I got it right this time. <laughs> Pima County. <laughs> well, that's right. It'd be a bunch of holes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we see many of the Roman roads because they put the foundations of the road deep into the ground, so they were deep and solid, and then they put the, the flat stones on them for people to travel on. And, and so that's the idea of a highway. It was sort of a broad road with a, with a firm foundation raised up so that when it rained, you didn't sink into the mud and the mire like you might on a local road, which was basically just a dirt path, okay? Highways. The king's road, sorry, the king's highway points to the greater spiritual road by which they would return to God by faith. The, now, the verb, rather, lifted up can also mean exalted. And it's the valleys that are lifted up. The valleys are, are, can be symbolic of the humble, uh, the people who've been downtrodden. They who are low will be lifted up or exalted. Uh, the places that are windy, twisty, unpassable, they'll be made straight. In other words, free of obstacles, which can also be figuratively used for the uprightness of life. To be made low can also mean to be humbled or humiliated. The proud mountains, the lofty mountains will be brought low, humiliated. The uneven ground. Very interesting. Because the root verb is to grasp the heel. Jacob or Yaakov. It's talking about how the uneven ground, the Jacob ground, will be made right. The, perhaps indicating the perverseness of Israel 
the twistedness, the, the sneakiness of Israel will finally be healed by the Lord. Transformed character. The exile. Back to Lamentations 4. As Jeremiah laments this, he says, The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. What is is Jeremiah getting at there? The king was the Lord's anointed, and the king was captured, and the king was sent to exile. The promise given to David, which is a narrowing down of the promise initially given to Abraham, Okay, the seed of Abraham, now it's the seed of David, the Messiah is going to come from David, but now all of a sudden David's line is in danger because of the exile. When the, when the return from exile comes, there's, we're going to find that there are harbingers, people like Haggai, and we're going to look at Haggai next week, who are telling Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, to take his place, essentially, as the Messiah. And through unbelief, he doesn't. And so we find that even though they got back to their place, even though they're still God's people, they didn't have a king over them yet. Something was left hanging. This was still, they were still waiting for. But we find that the harbingering, the harbinger announced spiritual restoration from the Lord. I'll say that again because it's different from what you have. The harbinger announced spiritual restoration from the Lord. Another question that comes to my mind, is that it? Was it all done uh, with the Cyrus edict, or did God have more in mind? We're reminded from 1 Peter chapter 1 that the Spirit of Christ was at work in the prophets, and in them He was speaking of something more, speaking of salvation in Christ. Not just that, but that we have Matthew 3 quoting this text and applying it to John the baptizer. We have Mark 1 quoting this text and applying it to John the baptizer. We have Luke 3 quoting this text and applying it to John the baptizer. And as if that were not enough, in John 1, we have from the lips of John himself Declaring that that text, that he is the one who's crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. All four Gospels testify to the fact that this is really fulfilled, ultimately fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. That God was about to do something incredible 
And that John is the first one to come and to say what it is. He is the true and fullest harbinger of the, go- of the message of the gospel. They're in the land. They have a temple. They need a king or a Messiah. And John arrives to say he's coming. Prepare the way because here comes the king. The king you have longed for, the king you have desired. The king that you perhaps feared would never come. The king who is unlike any other king that has ever been. Even the best of them, like Josiah. You see, God's great acts often included miraculous births. For instance, we have the miraculous birth of Isaac connected with the promise, the original covenant with Abraham. And, and then we have uh, the, what I consider to also be miraculous births of Esau and Jacob, because remember, they waited a long time for these children. We have the, the um, seemingly inexplicable birth of Joseph, who was going to, del- to deliver God's people into Egypt out of the famine. And of course, we have all of the events surrounding the birth of Moses. But what we have here at the beginning of the Gospels is two miraculous births. From the account that we read from uh, Luke chapter 1, we, re- we recognize that Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. She was barren. They had no kids. She had reproach. And then the angel appears to him as he's performing his priestly duty and says to him, you're going to have a kid. And let me tell you about that kid, he says. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's the harbinger. He's going to prepare, not a road, but He's going to prepare a people to walk the road of holiness. There's a second miraculous birth that's on the way a few months later because we see this girl, this teenager who was married or engaged to be married, Mary, Miriam, who had never been with Joseph and yet was found to be with child, the coming Messiah, Jesus, his cousin. John prepares the way for his cousin Jesus so that Jesus would be received by many in Israel as king. John and Jesus have come. But I ask you, Have you experienced the spiritual renewal that they offered? Are you changed by their message? Or are you the same after hearing their message? 
James 4, for instance, reminds us, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. One of the ways we know that we've been changed is if we're growing in humility. Pride opposes God, and God opposes pride. It's it's mutual. God hates it, and pride hates God. And there's a conflict, and it wears you out when you struggle with pride. Have you been humbled? Have you been brought low like those mountains so that you can be raised up like those valleys? Have you been humbled? And are you waiting for exaltation? In Jesus. Not only is pride wearisome, but so is fighting to get your way. That's tied to pride. Has God refreshed you by removing the obstacles in your heart, those rough places in your heart, those twisted, impassable places in your heart? Has God begun to straighten that road so that you can walk it? that road of holiness within your heart? Or is it still all twisted and turned? Turned back to God? Are you seeking to turn the hearts of others back to God? Have you begun begun to be a harbinger of Jesus, a herald of Jesus? But what I want us to keep in mind this morning is that renewal isn't about vacation. Sometimes we think that. If only I change my circumstances, everything will be okay. If, if I just had a better job, life wouldn't be so hard. If I was just married, or married to someone else, Life wouldn't be so hard. If only I had a more obedient child, life would be so hard. If only I had different parents, life wouldn't be so hard. If only I didn't live in Arizona, life wouldn't be so hard. We can come up with all kinds of if-onlys, and try to place the responsibility for the weariness of our soul on so many circumstances. Uh, But ultimately, it comes back to the fact that the weariness of our soul is due to the sinfulness of our soul. And the only answer is not geographic relocation. It's not career change. Although, that's not a bad thing sometimes. I'm not speaking from... You know, like present experience. Not getting out of here, okay? Don't worry. Or maybe you do. It's not about that. It's about seeking life in Christ. In resting in what He has done to deal with your pride to deal with your foolishness, to deal with your stubbornness, to deal with your perversity of whatever shape or form it may take. 
It is about finding life in Jesus. The only, if only, as if only I look to him, life will be better. Or at least I'll handle it better because it's Jesus who's helping me handle it. I'm not on my own. And so Jesus brings spiritual renewal for the spiritually weary when we trust in him, when we entrust ourselves to him. Well, back to Battlestar Galactica for a second. In the finale, they begin again on a new planet. They're no longer harassed by those uh, pesky computerized cyborgs, or Cylons, rather. The harbinger cries out that God is coming. And he's coming to bring his people home because their sins have been forgiven. God places them on a highway of holiness to get home. We see that ultimately John, the one who baptizes, came to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. While the harbinger is important so that you hear the message initially, he's not the one who's important. That's Jesus, the Messiah. It's Jesus who brings salvation. It's Jesus who brings holiness. Jesus is the one who continually renews our hearts by his grace. And so, are you looking to him when you're weary and guilty? Or are you looking somewhere else? He's the one, the only one, who can deal with your weariness and your guilt. As John Newton frequently says, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you we have some place to look. We thank you that you put a bronze snake on a staff and all your children had to do was look and to be healed. But even better, you put your son on a cross. And all we have to do is look with the eyes of our heart and be healed. To be forgiven. To be restored. To be adopted as your children. And so much more. So, Father, we thank you for the provision of Jesus. And we ask that your spirit would keep moving our eyes back to Jesus. Whenever we look away, fix our eyes back on Jesus. Because, Father, I confess we are prone to wander with our eyes. Thank you for a Savior. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.